The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome once again to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is Kate. And you know, I've been looking forward to this show for uh, several weeks Um I think when we think about the struggle for civil rights, many people think of Dr. Martin Luther King, the March on Washington, the lunch counter sit-ins, the courageous work of leaders in the 50s and the 60s to secure civil rights for African Americans in this country. But the truth is that the effort to secure civil rights for everyone in our country, regardless of gender, orientation, race, nationality, or religion, continues to play out today. And one of the key players in this ongoing effort is the ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union. Today, I'm honored to welcome Laura Murphy to our program. Laura directs the ACLU's Washington, D.C. Legislative Office, maintaining strong relationships with leaders in Congress and in the White House to advance the ACLU's public policy priorities on issues including national security, criminal justice, human rights, privacy, reproductive rights, civil rights, and First Amendment protection, and more. Laura is in her second tenure as the director of the ACLU's D.C. office, and she has just a a long and... um, venerable career and and history as one of Washington, D.C.'s leading lobbyists and activists for civil rights. Laura, thank you for being with me here today. It's my pleasure, Kate. Well, I am honored truly that you are here, and I I feel that an hour is going to fly by for me and for our (laughs) listeners, (laughs) but I'd like to start by just asking people to... um, Learn more about you, Laura, because you know your your own personal story. I think is woven with stories of the past and stories of the future. We're going to explore those stories today. I know you grew up close to D.C. in Baltimore, Maryland, and you attended mm-hmm. Wellesley College, and you started your career on Capitol Hill in the congressional offices of Perrin Mitchell and Shirley Chisholm. This is your second tenure, as I said before, directing the ACLU's D.C. office. I know you've also had your own private lobbying practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you've held key roles in the state government of California and in the D.C. mayor's office. You've been honored by the Congressional Black Caucus for your significant contributions to legislation that advances civil rights and civil liberties. These are all extraordinary things. I know that you testify frequently and really dozens of times you've testified before Congress. You've been recognized nationally. Uh, you write you blog, you're on television almost every week. Um, and, you know, so when I think about um, when I think about who you've become and all that you're doing, you clearly are one of the most in-demand and busiest um, people working for civil rights th- that I, I'm aware of. And I, I want to, as I said before, slow us down and start at the beginning and ask you if you could tell us a little bit about how you became the Laura Murphy you are today. Tell us a bit about your childhood and your personal history, if you would. Sure. Um, I'm the youngest of five uh, kids of Madeline and Bill Murphy, and 
Madeline and Bill Murphy were forces to be reckoned with. My mother ran a social work program to help disadvantaged young women at the church. My father was involved with the Presbyterian Church as well. They, um, Between the two of them, they ran for office, I think, seven times. And only one race was successful, and that was my father's race for a citywide judgeship in Baltimore. Then I had two older brothers who were politically active, both of whom ran for public office. So there were a total of 14 runs for public office in my immediate family. And so I grew up uh, at the dinner table where civil rights were being debated, and I listened to um, people who came to my parents from out of town because my parents were known as welcoming and very engaging, and, I, and they were thought leaders in the Baltimore community. And my mother wrote a column for the Afro-American newspaper for 25 years. So they, they had a lot to say, and they included their children. We had to be at dinner at 6 o'clock, no matter what after-school activity was going on, we all were expected to be at dinner at 6 o'clock. And my father would go around and ask us, you know, to, to give our opinion about who should be the president and why and what happened in school and, you know, what do you think about this person in the public eye and what do you think about Dr. King, what do you think about Stokely Carmichael? All of these discussions happened around the dinner table. So when I was seven, I started giving out campaign literature with my brother. And then when I was 15, I ran a group called the Strike Force with another teenager who was older. And he had a car, and we would drive around neighborhoods, and we'd play the music loud, and we'd give out cold drinks, and people would come out of their homes, and we would ask them if they were registered to vote. And we had a door-to-door canvassing team. And our, the name of our group was the Strike Force. We had T-shirts made up, everything. And when I worked on my father's campaign for citywide judgeship, this was in 1970, I was concerned because I didn't think he had the proper staff. And I thought the staff that were working for a number of candidates were favoring other candidates over him. And my father just laughed. He said, look, don't worry about that. I'm going to win. Because he had really uh, self-financed his campaign. He'd really, he'd run twice before. He had name recognition. He was pretty, he was a very confident man. But it was at that point, um, between 15 and 20, that I decided that I was going to learn all the elements behind successful candidates, uh, public relations, voter registration, policy development, public speaking skills. And so I put together, after I got out of Wellesley College, I put together my own kind of um, graduate program. I wanted to learn all of these skills. And so I started on Capitol Hill, then I became a lobbyist for the ACLU, then I got managerial experience, because what I thought the minority candidates lacked was the infrastructure to support their candidacies. And I wanted 
I never wanted to run for office because I thought the invasion of privacy was was too great. I remember my father lecturing me like and my brothers, you all can't do what other kids do. You're under a microscope. You'll be used to embarrass me, blah, blah, blah. And and I said, you know, that's a very, very uh, high price to pay. And so I want to be behind the scenes helping um, people understand politics and and working. Well, that is um, so much in what you've just said, Laura. And, you know, I, what strikes me is... Um, you know, how aware you were at such an early age of what was happening around you and, and how the expectations that your parents had that you would, you know, not just um, not just be a, a bystander, but actually participate and form opinions and, um, you know, take a, take a stand, you know, early on. I'm curious about the backdrop for this. What were the important civil rights issues of the day when you were, um, when you were growing up? Well, certainly the ability to register and and vote and and also have representation from certain communities. The redistricting process for city council, state legislature was such that it made it almost impossible for minority candidates to win offices because the black community would be cut up and divided into different districts. And so um, we had a growing black population in Baltimore um, and no representation. So that was an issue. Another issue was um, educational equity in public schools. Um, the public school where I lived, if you, you had used textbooks, you didn't have the proper supplies for classes like home economics and no scissors. Um, just the pe- the teachers were paid differently. And my mother um, put me on a bus starting at age 12 to go across town to get a better education. It took me an hour and a half each way. And I'd have to get up at, at um, 6.30 in the morning, make sure I was on the bus by 7.15, and, and I did that uh, and through the 11th grade. And so the school system was very segregated and separate but unequal. So even after the Brown versus Board of Education decision was made by the Supreme Court in, in 1954, very... Very few states complied immediately, and Maryland was one of those states that really dragged its feet. So voting, education, employment, there was lots of employment discrimination. Um, if you wanted to go to one of the fancy downtown department stores, um, often you wouldn't get served, um, and there weren't in black employees in those stores. So, you know, I remember going into a roadside restaurant out in Rockville, Maryland, and my brother, who's darker skinned than I am, and I went in to get food for the family, and we waited and we waited and we saw come, people come in after us, and we couldn't get any attention, and we 
we were in there for like 20 minutes and we came out and they said, Mom, they're not, Mom and Dad, they're not serving us. And they said, we're never going to patronize this place again. They're, they're not serving you because you're black. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we had money, you know. We weren't asking for any special treatment. We just wanted hamburgers. Mm-hmm. So those were some of the issues. Well, those are the, the. Thank you for for bringing that to life for us. You know, one of my favorite blog posts that you wrote recently was um, about um, the march on Washington and the fact that your parents decided that you, at the age of seven, needed to stay home with Mrs. Brown, mm-hmm. and how powerful, it, how disappointed you were, and mad about that. But watching it on television and watching Mrs. Brown's teary, you know, reaction to what she was seeing, this the peaceful, powerful march on Washington. And, you know, the the um, quote that comes at the end of the blog, you said, you know, I've been marching dry-eyed ever since, you know, and I, I think that, um, it, you know, out of this childhood you've just described, out of this context, really unfolded an extraordinary career. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, Laura, I'm hoping we can learn even more about um, how, you've, um, how you've become the leader you are today and what you're working on today at the ACLU. This is Kate Ebner. My guest is Laura Murphy, and we'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, 
Back to today's program. Good morning and welcome back once again. This is Kate Ebner and I'm so pleased to have Laura Murphy, Director of the Washington Legislative Office of the ACLU, with me on the show today. Laura oversees the ACLU's lobbying agenda advocating for the protection of our civil and human rights in the federal government. Um, Before the break, uh, Laura, you were telling us about um, your upbringing and how you grew up and and how that actually shaped your choices um, and your understanding of what was needed to help uh, people win uh, elections and, and, you know, so much insight out of all of that. I'd love it if you could just start by telling us um, how you got started in lobbying specifically. Well, I was, um, after, right out of college, I, I had an intern, well, before I graduated from Wellesley, I had an internship between my junior and senior year with my congressman, who I helped elect, Perrin Mitchell of Baltimore. And when I finished my internship, he offered me a full-time job upon graduation. So I had a job. I went to Washington. And then I found out that Perrin Mitchell didn't believe in paying. He was very progressive, but he didn't believe in paying women the same as men for the same job because he said men are breadwinners, Laura, and men need more money to support their families and you don't have a family. And I felt and that that this was wrong. And so then I went to work for Shirley Chisholm. And Shirley Shirley Chisholm had a majority female staff and she was about making change for women. She was working for the Equal Rights Amendment. She was working for, you know, better pay for domestic workers and janitors and all of that. And so I became really involved in equality issues working for her. And the head of the Congressional Black Caucus, the legislative director, said, look, the ACLU is looking for lobbyists. And I gave them your name. And I said, what? I'm happy in Shirley Chisholm's office. And he said, well, um, I think you'd make a great lobbyist. So I came to this five-person office for an interview and everybody was so nice and they were concerned about the issues that I was concerned about. I, you know, I loved free speech issues. Um, I think there's a, a, an important interplay. If you, if you don't have the right to talk about something, you won't, you're not likely to change it. So I think free speech is integral to, um, any efforts for equality. And so um, I got this interview, I got the job, and they assigned me to be an advocate for women's rights and civil rights. And I loved it because it was freeing. I got to speak in my own voice, um, say this is what the American Civil Liberties Union represents, this is what we're concerned about, we support this legislation, we oppose this legislation, and I was only 24, and I didn't realize how young I was, because I felt like I'd been in the movement, you know, most of my life at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was um, really exciting work, and, and to this day, it was my best job ever. 
Well, thank you for for sharing that story. It sounds, it does sound like you arrived in exactly the right place. And you know, I think it might be helpful to some of the people listening, Laura, if if you can describe sort of in a nutshell what the ACLU actually does. The ACLU is um, almost a hundred year old organization that was started because the government was deporting immigrant rights activists um, because they didn't like what the activists were saying. And believe it or not, up until the ACLU got started, the First Amendment, your right to free speech, the right to petition your government for redress of grievances, and the right to a free press, it had not been enforced by any federal court. So the government routinely squashed protest. And so the ACLU came along and it, it said, look, we have to protect the liberties that are given to us in our Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights guarantees citizens the right to, to practice whatever religion they believe, to be free of you know, the government searching your home without a warrant and and their their protections against government excess. By the time I joined the ACLU they'd branched out into civil rights. And civil rights referred to the positive actions of government that should be taken to create equal conditions for all Americans. Mm-hmm. So it's often associated with African Americans, Hispanics, and women, but increasingly it affects the rights of people with disabilities, the um, rights of the LGBT community, um, all kinds of uh, groups of people who are denied equal con- conditions in our society. So. Um, that's what the ACLU does. It's a membership organization. It does not receive any federal funds. Um, we have 500,000 members. We have offices in 50 states, and we have a national headquarters in New York. And my office is part of the national office, except that we are located in D.C. Thank you for explaining that. You know, it's... Um you know, it's it's very compelling to hear about how the ACLU works to make um, those rights uh, from the Bill of Rights really real for the average person. And um, I think I have heard you say that, you know, at, at one time or another, anyone and probably everyone needs the kind of advocacy that the ACLU is bringing. Um, I wonder, you know, as you, as we've talked about in the past, we talked a little bit about the the context um, that you grew up in in your childhood and what was happening on the civil rights front at the time. Um, I I want to bring us into the present moment and ask you, what are the issues of today that you think are the crucial issues for Americans to be paying attention to when it comes to our rights? Well, I still believe that um, there are great... Um, um, inequalities along racial lines and that the government is not doing everything it can to 
uh, assure that um, there's equal justice under the law. I think the Supreme Court has been particularly hostile to programs that help racial equality, whether it's in education or employment. Um, I think the right of women to be paid equal to men is still very much an issue. I mean, we can't get a pay equity bill passed in Congress. And in the private sector, there are some corporations that will retaliate against women who inquire about um, pay, what other people are making, or share. Or they will retaliate against women who share their income information. Because this is a way that some corporations suppress wages. I think gay rights um, have been on a very fast and breathtaking trajectory. And people think we've achieved um, full equality in the LGBT, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. That's what LGBT stands for. And that's not true. You can still be fired um, in many, many jurisdictions just because of your appearance or your sexual orientation. Um, then I think there are huge digital rights issues that affect everyone. Um, I think if, you're, if your child gets arrested for smoking pot and it's a misdemeanor and he or she is treated as a juvenile, what the court does is make those records go away. They're expunged. They're supposed to be removed from your history. But because all of these criminal records are being digitized you can't and sold to corporations by, by the government, you can't always make sure your record is clear. And I, and I think there's a digital divide where there, is, there are many, many companies that bill you only through um, the Internet, which makes uh, your need to have a computer and a smartphone essential as a way of doing business, anything from paying your parking tickets to, um, you know, registering for school, a lot of things are done digitally, and there are big disparities between low-income people and upper-income people, and they don't always fall along racial lines, but I, I think this Income inequality that we are experiencing as a society has tremendous consequences for civil rights. You know, we're gonna we're coming up on another break um, shortly here, Laura, in just a minute. But you know, it's interesting to to hear just even as you kind of gather these topics and you know put them in front of us, the diversity of uh, ways in which um, our civil rights show up as an agenda mm-hmm. or as a topic, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's our cybersecurity or our cyber privacy, I guess, or it's, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, the fast-tracked LGBT rights um, conversation, um, reproductive rights for women comes to mind, the 
um, deportation of immigrants is another issue of our day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, quite a quite a list, and it's been really um, valuable to pause for for me personally and think about um, the, the slate of issues that are here in 2014, and the way that the ACLU is is tracking them and working on them and lobbying for them, especially at a time when our our um, Congress and our, our Senate are sort of locked in um, partisan, uh, you know, debate or battle. I'm not sure what to call it. More you know, so partisan dysfunction. How about dysfunction, that? Dysfunction. I'll take that. <laughs> well, we're going to take our, our second break now. When we come back, Laura, I know that our listeners are probably really interested to hear when you look to the future, what vision you see, what should we be working toward, what's possible. So this is Kate Abner, my guest, Laura Murphy, and we're going to come back after just a minute and share more about what's happening today and what we're hoping will happen in the future. We'll be right back. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network do you want to take your organization to the next level The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello again. This is Kate, and today I'm talking to my distinguished guest, Laura Murphy, head of the Washington Legislative Office of the ACLU, and one of the top civil rights lobbyists in the nation. Laura, you've been called a history maker, and certainly you've been part of decades of some of the most important changes in our nation's history. Um, before the break, you were kind of bringing us into the present moment to look at the, um, 
I don't know, the buffet of issues that are in front of us today. And, and you know, I know that we were talking about, you know, uh, the kinds of civil rights that are that are in front of us today. We talked about uh, a little bit about marriage rights, about the um, LGBT issues. We've talked about um, the the privacy issues, which are so complex and related to the innovation that's happening in technology. Um, we talked about um, women's rights and about equal, equal pay. Um, we, we talked about, um, I, I mentioned deportation, which is, I know, an, an something you've worked on quite a bit. Just to finish that off, you know, is there anything else that you want to mention? Um, I think there are two issues uh, that I deserve our uh, attention as real civil rights issues, which is the 11 million people who are in this country who are undocumented. And what most people don't realize is most of those people are in mixed status families, meaning uh, a child will be born in the United States to undocumented people, and that child is a U.S. citizen and going to public schools um, or one sister may be a citizen and another may not be. So the immigration population is a part of the fabric of America, whether it's documented or undocumented. And we need to think of these people in this country being treated um, to, you know, um, deportation and long prison sentences and families being broken up. And what I would just want people to imagine is what if these were U.S. citizens in another country? How would we want our citizens to be treated by a country abroad? And the border has been porous for centuries. Parts of California were parts of Mexico. Agriculture did um, demands that, you know, seasonal workers come in and out. So we're as much of a cause and contributor to the large undocumented population as, as anybody else. And um, yet the, this is a very hot topic. It, it gives rise to very, very harsh rhetoric. And I just would like to see the country take the rhetoric down a notch and analyze the problem. The other issue is that we have mass incarceration in this country. We have prison overcrowding. We imprison more people than any um, country uh, outside of China and the U.S. and Russia per person. We incarcerate vastly greater numbers of individuals, and these individuals are eventually going to get out, and prison is not a place where people are being rehabilitated. In fact, they're learning about more criminal activity, and prison destroys families. Prison eliminates voters. Prison makes it almost impossible for people to get jobs. And over half the federal prison population are in prison for nonviolent offenses, such as mere drug possession. And so um, 
the war on drugs is a failure, and that's a civil rights issue. And we really need to ask ourselves whether or not we should be putting people in prison whose um, problem is the abuse of drugs and whether or not our health care system should be used instead. Thank you for expanding, you know, our understanding of of these issues of of our times. And Laura, I wanted to ask you. I kind of was joking before the break about here are these issues, right? And here is this dysfunctional government, as you put it. Um, you have a lot of experience at working on both sides of the aisle to get laws passed to help people find common perspective. You know, what insights do you have about how how we could move forward in a way that would create more bipartisanship, more uh, collaboration, more common ground? Well, I actually think that our campaign finance laws um, contribute to partisan gridlock and and really... Um, I think that there is too much money in politics, but there's too much money in politics that isn't controlled by candidates. And so I think we need to raise the contribution limits to candidates so that they can raise the money they need to run effective races. And I I think we ought to do something um, to discourage these shadowy groups from funding these ads. So one of the reasons there's gridlock is that everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid of the next attack ad. Everybody's paying more attention to fundraising than they are to policy. Another issue is the fact that um, it used to be fashionable for um, Republicans and Democrats to move to Washington, to put their kids in school together, to have meals together, to have drinks together, and a lot of that is frowned upon. Um, The level of um, rancor, nastiness in in our discourse has just elevated um, since the decades I started working in Washington, and it's it's very unpleasant. It's hard on the elected officials' families. So I take a, a tact that is unusual for an organization that is often called liberal, which I think is an incorrect um, title. But anyway, I reach out to Republicans. I invite them over for conversations. Uh, because I'm a lobbyist, I can't buy them dinner, but... I actually sit down and listen to their point of view and try not to be so quick as some of my other progressive colleagues to pass judgment. And I think when you listen to people, when you acknowledge their humanity, even if they have beliefs that you don't share, that this is a very, very powerful tool um, in in this kind of environment. So I I make it a point to reach across all party lines and say, listen, we're the ACLU. We're a nonpartisan organization. 
and we think you should be concerned about this issue because of X, what do you think? And you'd be surprised how that approach yields common ground. Thank you very much. That's a great insight um, to share with us. You know, I have so many questions for you, Laura, that I'm every time you speak, I think of more things I'm curious about. But <laughs> I do want to do the thing I said I was going to do, which is give you the opportunity to share uh, your vision for the future. You know, our show's purpose is to help our listeners hear visionary leaders speak about the future, the one that you can see that perhaps we aren't in a position to see, the one that you're working toward with your professional life and also with your personal values. So I want to ask you if you could share for us, you know, when you look to the positive future, what's your vision? My vision is that um, with young people so focused on the digital world, you know, texting, um, Instagramming, um, Facebook, uh, Twitter, I, I just think that we've got to use these tools to um, organize people for change. And we've got, I see a world where the Internet remains free and free from government surveillance so that, that they don't, the government doesn't have the ability to listen in on your uh, conversations because I think um, that has a chilling effect on our willingness to participate in the politics of our, our time. I think what we have to realize, too, is that every child under one about 50% of them in the United States are born to minority or mixed-race parents. We are going to become soon a majority-minority society, but there's a tremendous wealth gap. I mean, the C-suites, the corporate CEOs still are largely um, white male and We've got to get the LGBT community, women, racial minorities in those positions of power so that there is not a system where the powerful and the wealthy look one way and the majority of the nation looks another. I think voting is a huge challenge. We've got to get people to understand the importance of voting um, because those are where term limits come from. Voters march, vote with their ballots, and they can um, put someone out of office and put someone into office. So these are some of the civil liberties of, of the future. I see down the road mm-hmm. marriage equality for LGBT citizens, and I also see... Um, you know, a, a much more uh, fair society when it comes to the treatment of women, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you've taken us right up to our next break, and, you know, I think um, it, it's actually wonderful to hear you frame our future in terms of a world in which we've accomplished these things and where, you know, we, I, I think it always helps us set our sights to understand 
what you're working toward, and what we should be working toward. This is Kate Ebner, my guest today, Laura Murphy from the ACLU, speaking with us about her vision for the future. We'll be back for one more segment in just a moment. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back once again. We're in our final segment of an amazing conversation today with Laura Murphy, Director of the Washington Legislative Office of the American Civil Liberties Union, where she's provided leadership over many years. Um, Laura, you've given us so much to think about today already. And right before the break, you shared a vision of a world, a uh, more just world. And I want to um, ask you, you know, when you think about, you know, that vision, which I think gives us all something to work toward along with you, um, what concerns you? You know, what do you think we need to pay attention to? Well, <clears throat> I really think that um, there are economic issues that are holding the country back. It's really hard to tell a single mom who's got three kids that she needs to vote when she's got two jobs. She's got homework to check. She's got food to put on the table. And to make her take the time to stand in line to vote, and the lines can be very long, is really, to me, not justice. Voting should be easy. And so I, when 
you look at the disappearing middle class in this country, one of the effects it has on democracy and the Bill of Rights is that people don't have the freedom to exercise their rights because they can't afford to hire a lawyer. They can't afford to take time off from work to vote. They can't, they don't have time to go to rallies. Really, if we don't have a middle class, we really don't have a society that has the free time to exercise its um, civic muscle. And so I'm, I'm worried about income in, inequality because you can look at who votes and the most the people who vote the most are tend to be between 35 and 55 and uh homeowners vote more than renters and so the mortgage um crisis that we are still going through um makes people less likely to re-register they're trying to make ends meet and when you have people in such a perilous financial condition to expect them to exercise all of these civic rights is is a stretch. And so we really have to be concerned about the dwindling middle class for its impact on civic life. Thank you for sharing that. that that's, a, that's an excellent um, cautionary uh, note, I think, that, that goes with being watchdogs, I suppose, of our society and, you know, sort of like what should we fight for? What should we stand for? We hear discussion of the middle class, I think, in every economic argument and many political discussions that are presented. But understanding the implications of a declining middle class is something that I think think, uh, is very helpful for all of us to sort of go beyond – the rhetoric, so to speak, to really understand the, those implications. I want to ask you, because I know that um, this is something you think about. I also know that both of your parents were very committed to mentoring other people, really developing that next generation of leaders. And you said to me during the break that, you know, the work is never done. We're really, this is, this is always ongoing. And so I want to ask you, when you think about developing the next generation of civil rights leaders, um, people who really take a stand for the issues that you've been describing and the ones that are here with us now especially, um, you know, what what would that look like? What, what will it take? What should we do to develop the next generation? Well, I think it has to be a more conscious effort on the part of people like me, who are in positions in advocacy organizations that create internships. I mean, we have many more interns than we can accommodate. But one of the things I notice is that um, a lot of internships are unpaid, and that really um, gives you a a population pool of, of of kids from affluent backgrounds, and we really need kids from every background. So I'd like to see some sort of training program that becomes part of uh, college or graduate school or high school curriculums that help people prepare for lives in the in the nonprofit sector, which is dedicated to m- making the world um, a better place. I think. Um, 
I'd like to take a more active role in helping young people. I feel like I've mentored a lot of people, but I think it has to be more intentional on the part of many leaders, not just, you know, me and a few others, but I see so many leaders who are still very much caught up in their own success and not thinking about the day when they retire, you know, who's going to be prepared to take their places um, in leadership positions. And so I think um, as a society, we owe that to ourselves because if... What you see in the history of the United States is that we'll get rights for a minute, and then another group will get empowered, take those rights away, and then another group will get empowered and bring those rights back. And so no liberty ever stays won. No civil rights bill is ever finished. And we can all say, oh, we don't need that civil rights law anymore. So this vigilance requires troops, and we need to get more people involved in the kind of work that I do so that we um, can take free speech for granted, we can take our privacy rights for granted, and or not maybe for granted, but we, we can have some comfort knowing that um, those rights will be protected and it won't be up to every individual to protect his or her own liberty. You know... We have time for one more question, and, you know, I'm the mother of teenagers finishing high school, mm-hmm. looking toward college, and I know you also are a millennial mother, and um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, all of us are looking at this huge generation called the millennial generation, whose paradigm is so different than every previous generation, thanks in large part to the advances in technology. And I wonder, Laura, you know, we have about two minutes, but... What advice do you have for young leaders today, for this next generation of young leaders? Well, I I think that to the extent while you're living with your parents and you can afford it, you ought to volunteer in nonprofit organizations. You need to see how other people live, um, whether it's uh, a food line um, uh, for the homeless, feeding the homeless, or whether it's working for the ACLU or La Raza or the NAACP or the Human Rights Campaign, you know, we need to we need to understand the importance of giving back and instill that in our kids. Um, the other thing is that that we need to. Um, Talk about public policy positions with people we don't agree with. We might learn something. I don't know if I'm answering your question, Kate, but... I think you are. I mean, I think those are great, great guiding ideas for, for this generation. And, you know, we are at the end of our hour. I knew it would fly by, and it did. Um, Laura, I want you to know that we're featuring you in the Nebo newsletter this week, and we'll be providing lots of links and references to your work and your voice so that people can learn more about you and can learn more from you. Um, you've been so generous with your perspective and your stories in this hour, and there's um, obviously so much food for thought here. I want to say thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. The honor's been mine. 
It has been a privilege, and I, I hope that we'll continue our conversation. And for those of you listening, I hope this will really get you thinking, and not only thinking, but maybe taking some action. Thank you for joining us today. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com.